there. Welcome back to another episode of my weekly show. I'm Father Roderick. Always happy to bring you the latest news from the world of geeks, the world of, well, my world, the world of the church, the world of TV series, technology, books. There is always something to talk about. So thanks for listening and sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. This episode is brought to you thanks to my patrons. I've got a small community of people that support me on a monthly basis. In return, I record for them uh, an extra podcast every week. Um, and it's it's their help that makes it possible for me to bring you these podcasts without advertisements. Um, and also, they enable me to venture into larger endeavors and to create documentaries and stuff. There's a lot of things that I can do thanks to the help of my patrons. If you want to join that community, then take a look at uh, uh, patreon.com slash fatherodrick. Thanks in advance. Do you know what's going on? This is what's happening in your world. They said Catholics rule. We got Boston, South America, the good part of Ireland, and we're making serious inroads in Mozambique, baby. You've taken your first step into a larger world. Well, it is going to be another interesting week. I'm recording this on Monday at the start of the week, and I'm happy to be back in the saddle when it comes to recording these shows on a regular basis. Um, I had to juggle around quite a few things in order to make this happen. Uh, not to mention that there's also a lot of other stuff that I need to manage. But the biggest change with last year is that I'm focusing much more, as I've explained in the previous episodes, on uh, these YouTube channels. I've uh, created three YouTube channels in total. One is the old one where I did my geeky stuff and the Star Wars reviews, etc. But then I noticed that the vlogs and the documentaries that I wanted to share with an international audience didn't match with the audience that I had on, on my let's say, my main YouTube channel. So I decided to create a special channel for that. And then I had my Lego adventures, you know, the, the build, I'm currently I'm building the Disney castle from Lego. It's a lot of fun, but those are live episodes. And, uh, and those two didn't appeal to, let's say, the general public that was subscribed to my original YouTube channel. So I made an, a special channel for that as well. And then I really committed to making that first, the main channel, to make it big. I currently have about 26,000 uh, followers. Um, just in the past two weeks, I've had another 400 new people that subscribe to that channel. And um, one of the ways in which I've been able to accomplish that is by focusing on uh, doing much more much more research and more preparations before I record these videos because I want to make them entertaining, informative, not too short, not too long. I really want to talk about topics that people are actually interested in. And so that required um, kind of a bit of a mind shift or a paradigm uh, shift in, in, in myself um, because in the past, as you know, this audio podcast was just me basically talking about a, a ver wide variety of topics that uh, that crossed my mind, that, that were of interest to me at the time. Um, and sometimes I would prepare it very well. Other times I would just wing it. And this time I was like, well, now I need to find a way to combine all this and maybe I can record the podcast in such a way that parts of that show are also interesting for uh, a, an audience that is not listening to podcasts. And, well, those 
there are different people and different media habits. And so I know that, that I've got a large following of people that love to listen to audio only, but I also have a, a larger audience that would prefer a video form for this for the same content. And I didn't want to duplicate everything. And, and so that's last week I've been really trying out well, what works for me, what is feasible. I also, of course, need to be very... Um, efficient with my time because I've got my TV job, I've got my parish duties. So, and, and a day, and it's really frustrating, still has 24 hours per day. Uh, certain hours of which I need to sleep or train for a marathon or whatever. Well, this week I'm, I'm, I'm trying out uh, what I hope is going to be the, the definitive um, workflow. And that is I, I prepare the podcast just as in the past. It's got the same topics as I used to talk about so that for my audio listeners, nothing is changing. But then I make sure that if I talk about specific things that may be interesting for a YouTube audience as well, that I do kind of focus and bring more focus and uh, to, to those segments of the show so that later on I can cut them out of the uh, overall recording and post them individually as, as separate YouTube videos. I have no idea if that works, um, but I'm going to give it a try. And, well, if things go wrong, then that's, that's the reason. In other news, um, something very, very cool happened recently. I got a phone call from Disney. Yeah, from Disney. Well, not the main headquarters of Disney in the United States, but I got a phone call from the Dutch uh, branch of Disney, um, which I had some contacts with in the past, especially uh, when it came to the Star Wars premieres. They always sent me an invitation to, to, to watch the new Star Wars movies together with a crowd of VIPs. A lot of fun, and then you you get to talk with you know one or two Disney uh, employees that make that happen. But then all of a sudden, I get an invitation or a call uh, with an invitation to come speak to the entire crew of Disney the Netherlands, and that's going to happen next week. Uh, they always do that around the beginning of the of the new year, at the start of a new year, uh, to rally the troops. It's, it's a bit informal; it's nothing too big. Um, and what they do is they give all their uh, employees kind of an update on how things are going, what to expect, and then they always invite someone, and I'm saying always, Disney Netherlands hasn't been around for that many years, but they, they I, I assume they take that format from, let's say, from the United States, from other parts of the world. They call it the Disney Town Hall, and they always have someone from outside of the company who then, you know, gives a, a talk or something like that or shares experiences. Well, it turns out that this year they wanted to invite me. And the reason, again, is YouTube. Uh, you may remember, if you follow me on YouTube, that I posted a video, I think this was around November, beginning of November, I think. Uh, I posted an impromptu review of Disney+. Plus Because Disney had decided to do a pre-launch of Disney+, Plus of the service, in the Netherlands. This being, uh, at the same time, a very small country. So it's easy to do a test run, but it's also uh, a, a very digital country. We're very used to video on demand. We have very high-speed internet almost everywhere. So this was a, a perfect test laboratory for, for the service before they went worldwide. And even now, Disney Plus is not worldwide. It's, they're kind of rolling it out slowly so that they can grow their capacity over time. And 
I think that was a very wise decision. So we got to we got to enjoy a month of Disney Plus before the rest of the world, and in addition, it was free. So I signed up, and the morning that went live, I remember checking it out and and taking my phone uh, and doing like in selfie mode. Uh, an impromptu review of what I saw, and I went through the menu, and I, well, I was my my super excited self, of course. And what they told me on the phone was that video, that review, was shared all over the world, and also internally was shared with everyone, not only who worked on the Disney Plus project, but the person that was talking to me on the telephone said they showed it to Bob Iger, and they showed it to George Lucas. <laughs> And they were so excited about that review. And for them, it was such a... Because they, they had prepared this for months, of course. And it's a very important uh, part of their overall media strategy for the years to come, maybe for decades to come. But they were all developing that internally. And this was the first time that they got like an external review of someone who reacted to, well, the, the, the their, their newborn baby. And apparently... My uh, the way in which I reviewed it, my enthusiasm uh, was a huge boost of morale for everyone at Disney. And so when they were looking for someone to talk next week at their town hall meeting, they was like, well, let's ask that priest from, from Disney+. Plus. And then they said, well, we've also watched your, your Star Wars uh, New Year's resolutions video, and we love what you do, and, uh, and we would love it if you could come and, and, and talk to us. So that's what I'm going to do next week. It's a couple of hundred people. It's in Amsterdam. Uh, and I am I'm very excited about it because I, I love what Disney is currently doing. Um, I'm, of course, as a fan of good stories i love I've, I've i've been a fan of of the disney movies i'm a huge fan of marvel i'm a huge fan of disney so there is a there's a good match here i think in terms of uh, areas of interest but it's still kind of unreal that i was recording that in the morning i was kind of sleepy i i'm not sure even that i did a good job but apparently it doesn't really matter uh, what, what 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 touches people or at least what touched people at Disney, for goodness sake, Bob Iger and George Lucas. What they loved was my enthusiasm. And, uh, well, it's sometimes so crazy to discover that um, you may record something and in your mind it's like, I'm not even sure if I'm going to post this online. I'm not even sure if it's good enough. And then uh, months later, you hear that it had a huge impact on on the entire company and that which results in a, an even stronger bond between me and uh, uh, at least the, the Disney people in the Netherlands so that is uh, that's super cool I'm, I'm so excited about this all right it is um, time to move over to the world of movies and TV shows not sure if this works how do you not like movies they're predictable like the guy gets the girl and that kid sees dead people and Darth Vader is Luke's father. Not liking movies is like not liking puppies. They're fine. I just get bored and never make it to the end. You know, you need a movie education. You need a movication. I'm going to give it to you. I am so eager to talk about the 
first episode of the new Star Trek series, Star Trek Picard. Now, I realize that not all of you have been able to see it, so I will keep this, and this is so hard, I will try to keep this spoiler-free, even though I would love to do like a deep dive and comb through this episode because there's so much in this first episode, so many Easter eggs, so many good things. Uh, there, I have a, a ton of theories about the story, but I want to spare those of you that haven't been able to see it yet, either because they are unable to watch it. Uh, in This has just been launched uh, last Friday, I think, it or last Saturday it went live. and uh, But also a lot of people don't have a subscription to, in the United States, CBS All Access. That's where you get the new Star Trek stuff. And in parts of the rest of the world, uh, you can watch this series on, on Prime Video from Amazon. And also, that is not everyone. So I'm very well aware that some of you may even only watch this later on when it appears on, I don't know, uh, on Blu-ray or, or DVD or by other means of consuming this content. So I'm going to contain myself, which is super hard, but I do want to give you my first reaction to this series. Is it any good? And maybe I can answer the question if I wouldn't have a subscription to CBS All Access or Amazon Prime, would this be the reason for me to get a subscription? Well, let me answer that question right away. Yes. Oh, yes. This is so good. This is so much better than what I thought they could do with the whole concept of bringing back Jean-Luc Picard um, that I would totally get a subscription, even if only for the duration of the of the series, because they're posting this every week, um, very similar to what Disney Plus did with The Mandalorian, so you get an update uh, every week, a new episode to uh, to enjoy. And But then there is going to be a hiatus, and then they're going to film the next series. The, the second season has already been greenlit. They dared to do that without even having... having tested this with the worldwide audience that is currently watching the first few episodes. So that is, I think, a huge indicator that that CBS uh, and, and Amazon Prime, that they are very confident that the quality of the series is so good that this will be a hit. But um, uh, I can imagine that, well, people will just take a subscription for six months or well, no, maybe even less because it's... I don't even know how many episodes there are going to be in this first season. But for the duration of the first season, they will subscribe. They may also be able to watch, if it's CBS All Access, you can you can watch uh, Star Trek Discovery as well. So for those of you that have hold, held out on that, that may be a, an extra reason to get CBS All Access. I don't have any affiliation, by the way, with those, with those streaming uh, platforms. So uh, I, I'm just saying, as a Star Trek fan, that's what I would do. In... My part of the world, it's slightly different. Um, Star Trek Discovery is on Netflix. Uh, and, well, I already had a Netflix subscription, so um, I, I, I loved that series. Uh, two seasons are al already on, on Netflix. But this one was, well, the Prime, Amazon Prime uh, made a deal. Uh, and so they have that. So in, in, in my country, you have to have both subscriptions, both Netflix and CBS, uh, no, and, uh, and and Prime Video. There is some other stuff on Prime Video, not that much here in the Netherlands, but if only for Star Trek Picard. Now, after having seen the first episode, 
for me, it's totally worth having those two subscriptions to be able to follow all that new Star Trek content because both in the case of Star Trek Discovery as well as for Star Trek Picard, I think it is it is, these are glory days for Star Trek fans. All right, let's talk about Star Trek Picard. What makes it so good? Well, the first of all, the, the, what makes it so good? It is Jean-Luc Picard, and he is back, and he even says, engage. That is not a spoiler, <laughs> because that was in all the, all the trailers. But I didn't expect it to, you know, to, to be part of these first few episodes. Um, Patrick Stewart is back reprises the role and there is at one point somewhere in the first episode i'm not going to tell you in what circumstance but someone tells him be the captain they remember and that is fulfilled partially in the sense that he is absolutely the the Picard that we remember from Star Trek The Next Generation. He's got the same authority, the same charism. He has aged, and but that becomes part of the story. And not only has Jean-Luc Picard aged and changed, but so, and even more so, has the world and has uh, the, the politics, the, the whole situation in in, in, in this Star Trek universe. And that is what makes it so interesting because you, you see the captain that you remember, and of course he's not a captain anymore um, because he's, he's left Starfleet, basically. Again, that's not a spoiler, that's straight from the, the trailers. Uh, and he now lives in France and he, has, he, he lives where he always dreamt he would end up uh, at the end of his career. You know, at Chateau Picard. We even hear him speak French <laughs> to his dog, but still. And um, as you know, Patrick Stewart is not French, even though he's portraying someone who's supposed to be from France, Jean-Luc Picard. Um, he does an, an admirable job trying to speak a few words in French, but it is, well, I'm, I'm pretty fluent in French, and you can tell that, uh, well, he's not a native speaker. But then even that is also used in the series because then he's, he immediately adds uh, that he's still learning to speak French. So either he's re, uh, trying to relearn French because, or maybe, and I don't know all the ins and outs of, of uh, the history of Jean-Luc Picard, maybe he's been away from France uh, from when he was a kid and, well, he never got the opportunity to learn it very, very well. I don't know. But anyway, so he lives in France. He's got his vineyard. He's retired. And then, of course, every good story starts with, let's say, the status quo. Everything seems to be balanced. Everything is okay. And then there's disruption. That's a classic story element. So what's the big disruption here? Well, his world is about to be uh, turned upside down by, again, I'm only referring to what you've been able to see in the, in the trailer. And if you've seen the trailer, you still don't know what this episode is going to, uh, to be. But there is this mysterious girl, this young woman, and she shows up in his life and there is a total uh, uprooting of, of his existence. He needs to take action and that's where the story all of a sudden takes off. What makes this series so compelling, at least this first episode, is that they honor... Um, 
the past. They honor Star Trek The Next Generation. Even the entire Star Trek legacy. There are so many uh, little uh, clues and and very, very cool flashbacks and uh, Easter eggs. This one, this is a freeze-frame episode where every minute there is a cool Easter egg and you have to hit pause and take a note uh, that's what I would love to do in another uh, episode is just to do a deep dive and uh, share and and just fanboy about ev- all these little, you know, reminiscences of, of the past. But it's not just, well, let's just redo what fans expect. This is not fan service. What they do is they, they take all those familiar uh, elements, but they put them in the background of a totally new story, and it's also a very new chapter in the life of Jean-Luc Picard. He's not only the captain that people remember. He's not just the Picard that people remember. He's also a a new Picard in a certain way. He has to react to a new situation. The world has moved on. Some people don't even uh, remember him anymore. Um, But also... Starfleet has changed. The, the the whole political spectrum has changed. And he doesn't recognize it anymore as his world. So just like we are new to this world, Picard is kind of our proxy in this first episode to experience this, this new reality of uh, San Francisco uh, in in the future, the 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 next phase in 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 Starfleet history. And it's not all is well. That, of course, is a very important element for the storytelling. Otherwise, you don't have a plot. Things are wrong. And the story needs a hero. The story needs someone to stand up and either remind people of what Starfleet used to stand for, what he stands for. He has to fix a broken situation. And what makes this first episode so intriguing is that it combines so nostalgia... It also has a lot of mystery. There are a lot of things happening and you try to connect the dots, but you don't have enough information yet. Even the first episode um, has has you sitting on the edge of your seat and a lot of stuff is already explained in the first episode. So they do reward your you, you paying attention to, the, to this mystery, but at the same time, it sets up a, a lot of pieces of the game that will be that will play out in this first season and maybe even in the second season. So it it is very gratifying. Um, it it do, does require some concentration. There, as you can imagine, um, there is a lot of exposition. We need to basically get up to date on the situation of Jean-Luc Picard, situation of the, uh, our planet Earth, of Starfleet. And so um, it's very clever exposition. They use the 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 trope of an interview um and so through the questions of the person that interviews uh, Jean-Luc Picard we get a lot of that information so it's done i think in a very clever way um but still it's a ton of information but if you pay attention um a lot of that sets in motion your mind as a star trek fan is like oh but could that mean that? But wait a minute, was that happening in the Kelvin timeline or in the other timeline? And and so it 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 it's super engaging, and it made me immediately go back and rewatch that episode. And in that respect, in in a certain way, I think that this episode was even better. Dare I say it, as a Star Wars fan, than the first episode of The Mandalorian. 
I am a huge fan of The Mandalorian. But The Mandalorian is, those episodes still tell small stories. They're more or less self-contained. There is, of course, the, the big surprise. There is uh, the child, etc. But every episode, once you've seen it, maybe what I do is to go online and watch a YouTube video giving me some of an explanation about the Easter eggs or something like that. But I haven't felt the need to go back and rewatch uh, the series again. I feel like I'm, I'm super eager to know what's going to happen in season two. But, you know, once I, I was done watching those episodes, well, there's not much reason for me to immediately go back. With with this episode, with Star Trek, uh, Picard, I was like, I, I can watch this one at least three or four, five times because it's stuffed with information, with things, with visually also. It, this is stunning. I, I cannot believe what they did with the budget, I don't know if, if this series has a bigger budget than The Mandalorian. And as you know, The Mandalorian had a huge budget, but it was actually filmed um, on a very high-tech indoor set. Even though it looks as if it's all happening outdoors, they used the same kind of rear projection system that um, Jean Favreau had been using for uh, The Lion King. And so they are applying that same technology to The Mandalorian and... That's why it got it's got that huge scope. It feels like it's all over the planet or all over the galaxy, although it, everything was filmed on set. With Picard, there is a combination of real-life sets. So, for instance, the vineyard, France. I'm pretty sure that they did not film that in France. Um, maybe they just went to California and filmed it somewhere in the United States. After all, a vineyard... You know, all vineyards kind of look the same. Maybe there's also a little bit of enhancement that's happening with the footage that they shot. But at least it's outdoor. It's filmed on the location of a real castle. Um, even some of the interior sets kind of look real to me, as if they were filmed inside a real building. And it's not... Uh, I may be wrong. This may be a studio set, but I couldn't tell. That's how good, that's how good it all looks. But it feels like they've gone on location. And then there, there are also a ton of scenes that happen in very futuristic worlds. Of course, if you go to visit Starfleet headquarters in San Francisco, uh, well, none of that, of course, exists in real life. So you know that this was, you know, CGI trickery, green screen work. They probably went to some locations... Uh, like modern buildings that uh, look very futuristic because that too was definitely in some of the scenes um, later on in the episode you see them walking around in a real environment it's not green screen um, but they combine that with uh, uh, fantastic digital sets that look so good and so especially colorful there's a very very colorful colorful first episode and then you have the stunts there is fighting there are pursuits there is a lot of uh, i would say alita battle angel type of action and it is amazing so also the choreography of the fights in this first episode wow hats off this is so so much better than i thought they would do and and we're very far away from from let's say the the budget and also the style of the next generation episodes even the later seasons that was still very much a serialized type of approach where everything was filmed on a set like the bridge of the enterprise was made to look almost like a living room a futuristic living room 
because of course you can cut so much so so much of the costs by having a lot of the dialogue and a lot of the action take place in one fixed location of a bridge it was a I think a fantastic idea of the original Star Trek to have a lot of the action take place on the bridge. And if they're, you know, your, your ship gets hit by, uh, I don't know, torpedoes, you just shake the camera. You don't have to shake the set. It is a very cost-effective way of doing things. And then if you have these away missions on a planet, well, we'll just build a simple set with some plastic rocks and, and we'll uh, add some green screen work and some colored lights. But here, this is... Anything but that. Everything looks for to me on the level of of a of a cinema, cinematic experience. Um, I was not a fan of the later Star Trek movies that came out, and especially Star Trek Nemesis, the final installment with the crew of the Next Generation, was not really my thing. I did I didn't think the story worked. Um, it, there were so many compromises in that in that script and a lot of disappointments and it, I'm not surprised that the movie didn't do well at the box office and and ultimately led to the cance cancellation of, of Star Trek in general. Uh, we've had many many years without any Star Trek because well Nemesis didn't work. What I um, what I think is that this first episode looks 10 times better than any of the previous Star Trek movies. And it, this is just TV. But what it also does, and I have to applaud the writers for, for trying this, it does honor the story, it, it, the legacy, not just of the television series, but also the events, even in that bad movie, Star Trek Nemesis. It, uh, all the plot lines, the story elements... Uh, the Death of Data, that's not a spoiler, right? That was in the, that movie. If you haven't seen it, then why are you watching this? <laughs> but um, the, uh, the, the, the plot wasn't very good, but they do take the, the, the results, the consequences of that story and integrate it into this startup st story for, for Jean-Luc Picard. And um, it, it is almost a bit, it's not really retconning, but it is giving more weight to that movie because now you know what, how, how much that story is important as a basis for the story of this first season. Um, and I always love it when, when movies do that. I also love that of, of The Clone Wars. I'm watching Star Wars The Clone Wars right now in preparation for season seven. And, and just watching all those, those storylines that I had no idea were, were there because I'd never watched Clone Wars before. They want me to go, they they help me to want to go back to the original movies, to the prequels, both the prequel that preceded this, the Clone Wars timeline and the third prequel, because now it's, it makes so much more sense. There's a lot of the, of the plot holes are now filled in. I know the characters much better. And what I think is that already this first episode is enough reason to go back to Star Trek Nemesis and rewatch that movie. And uh, maybe... That movie will even contain some more clues for how this story will, will develop. So, all in all, final conclusion, is it worth having a subscription to either CBS All Access or Amazon Prime just for Star Trek uh, Picard? I would say, as a Trekkie, yes. By all means, yes. This is fantastic television. This is a rebirth, in a certain way, a second rebirth, of Star Trek as a franchise. I like this. 
even better than I like Star Trek Discovery and way better than the J.J. Abrams uh, reboot. So I'm a very, very happy camper. And uh, one final remark, I really don't get the negative reviews. It's almost as if some some media corporations or, or newspapers just want to write down something negative. There is one, this is one review on Entertainment Weekly and it's like, can Star Trek Picard ever recover from the disaster that is the first episode? I was like, dude, are, are we living, are we walking around in the same hollow suite? Have you been watching the same thing as I've watched? And I, I, I know from the reactions over... Uh, all over the internet, I'm not alone. A lot of Star Trek fans loved this first episode and can't wait to see the rest of the season. So I don't know what e uh, Entertainment Weekly is, is uh, um, why they're writing that negative stuff. Something tells me it's just to get more eyeballs because, well, negativity apparently is good for, for engagement and good for the views. Well, I don't want to be part of that. If no one watches this uh, or, or listens to this review of mine because it's too positive, then so be it. I love Star Trek. I love Star Trek Picard. And I love what they've done. And with that, it is time for the Peculiar Bunch. <laughs> Catholics rock! Here at the Peculiar Bunch, we're always happy to tell you everything you always wanted to know about Catholics and Christianity. Are you afraid to ask? Catholics can be a peculiar bunch. No meat on Friday. Oh, meat? What do they eat? Light bulbs? Today I want to talk a little bit about uh, an experience that I had uh, at the end of last week in a monastery. Man, you guys got more crazy rules than Blockbuster Video. This last week, I was invited to speak at the beginning of a retreat. There's a group of, uh, of women, of ladies, who uh, were going on their yearly retreat in a Benedictine monastery. Even though a lot of people uh, have the idea that the Netherlands is very secularized and no one goes to church anymore and Christianity is all but forgotten and has disappeared, we still have a number of monasteries. And actually, they are doing extremely well. This is a general trend, and I'm not sure if it's just local here in my country or if this is international, but these um, monasteries are booked sometimes years in advance by groups for retreats. Um, they're always filled to capacity. And so this group that invited me to speak, they told me that they had to book their retreat uh, a year and a half in advance because for the rest of the year they were completely booked the monastery itself is a very classic Benedictine monastery. It is uh, located in the north of the country, a bit to the west of Amsterdam, you could say, a bit north, north to the northwest of Amsterdam, very close to the sea. And when I was arriving and I stepped out of my car, I could smell the sea. You could feel the humidity in the air. It was kind of a gloomy, a bit of an overcast day. And uh, you hear the, the birds, the seagulls, and it... it, it I live right now in the center of the country, so I could immediately tell that I was close to the sea. And there was another thing that um, uh, was very cool about that day was that in that particular Benedictine monastery, that's where I did my 
uh, ordination retreat. You may not know this, but, but um, before I was ordained a priest, I was first ordained a deacon. That is kind of the way in which uh, the sacrament of ordination is structured in the Catholic Church. Um, before you're ordained, uh, let's say, let's start at the end. What, what The most important element of ordination in the Catholic Church is the ordination of bishops. The bishops are the shepherds. They are the successors of the apostles. And uh, even in the early, early, early days of Christianity, the we already know from the stories that we read in the New Testament that the apostles transmitted their mission to successors, and they would impose hands, say prayer, ask for the Holy Spirit, and those were the, the, the first bishops. And they transmitted their their responsibility to younger generations by the same thing, by imposition of hands and a specific ordination prayer. So at first, the way in which uh, Jesus wanted to make sure that that when he would return to his Father in heaven, that there would be other shepherds that would take care of the flock was by appointing his apostles to do that and then transmitting that. Then, of course, a bishop cannot be everywhere. And so very soon in the early church, you see uh, a function um, that was in in Greek uh, called presbyteros. Those are usually the elder, not the elderly, but the the elders of the community. So people that had a certain reputation that were able to also take responsibility for those local churches. And they would be ordained by the bishops. So the bishop would transmit some of responsibilities to these priests and they would act in his name and be close to the flock locally in the name of the bishop. And so from a very early stage, you have bishops and you have priests. And then in addition to that, and this is also uh, that what we read in the New Testament, there was another form of ordination uh, because the priests couldn't do everything and be everywhere. It's a, apparently an ongoing problem for priests that a day only has 24 hours and there is always too much work. And so the, there is a, a third form of ordination that was the deaconal uh, ordination. So the early church chose people to become deacons, and the deacons, uh, even though they also had some sacramental uh, uh, tasks, so they could baptize, um, they could be witnesses at a wedding, etc., but uh, also a lot of sacramental tasks were still um, for, for the priest and for the bishop. So, for instance, celebrating the sacrament of the Eucharist, so mass, basically, that has never been part of the uh, of, of what deacons did. And um, also a lot of liturgical tasks, um, uh, for instance, the sacrament of confession also. That was for bishops and for priests, not for deacons. Deacons, however, got an additional task, and that was to take care of people in need. Um, so they would take care of the of widows, of, of um, uh, orphaned uh, children, um, the poor. And so whereas the priests spend a lot of their time on, let's say, liturgy, prayer, sacramental duties, um, the deacons were sent into the world to go and, and care for the poor, but all in communion with the bishop. This is all delegated... Uh, uh, delegated work in a certain way. That is why these three forms of ordination are still part of the, of the one sacrament of ordination. 
But that, what that means in practice is that before you are ordained a bishop, you need to have been ordained a priest. And before you can be ordained a priest, you have to be ordained a deacon first. And usually there is some time between those two ordinations in my case. So before I received my ordination as a priest, I was a uh, half year before that was ordained to be a deacon. And because that is a huge step, that is uh, basically the moment that you give your life away. In my case, you give your life away to the church, you put your hands in the hands of the bishop, and my life doesn't really belong to me anymore, I give it to the church. Um, and that means that uh, since this is such a pivotal step in your life, the church asks the candidates that will present themselves for this ordination that they take uh, a final week, usually it's the week before ordination, and to go on a retreat, um, to pray, to listen, to share. In my case, I had a number of other uh, candidates for the diaconate and later on for the priesthood. So um, we went on a retreat in that particular abbey in, uh, in Egmont, Egmont Abbey. And so I have, I have fond memories, also a little bit fuzzy memories because it's 25 years ago. So uh, I was a very young Father Roderick. I wasn't even a Father Roderick. I was just Roderick. Um, but I remember that the, the being in that abbey, um, being able to join the prayer of the monks, and almost all the monks have died since, and there are new monks now. So that's kind of weird. You, you look around and it's like, do I, do I recognize anyone from back then? It's like, oh no, of course not. Because when we were young, when we were going to be ordained, most of the monks there were 60, 70 plus. It's now 25 years later, so most of them have deceased uh, or are deceased. So that's interesting, but it's also kind of comforting to see that there is a new generation of monks that have taken the place of the monks that are no longer there, and everything else is the same. That's 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 very cool about monastic life. It doesn't change that much. So there's a huge consistency in the lifestyle and the way they pray. Uh, of course, the church and the abbey look the same. The one thing that has changed is that they have renovated a part of their monastery to be able to host people that also want to join, if only for a few days, the life of the monks, and uh, either with the accompaniment of, of one of the uh, monks or friars, or with an external preacher, they will just have a retreat there. So um, at first I would go there on Saturday, but then we had a, a, an extra meeting here the, uh, for the Tridio, that's the media platform that I that I run, um, so I couldn't be there on Saturday. So they invited me to speak at the start of their retreat. And uh, I usually don't mind speaking. I, Well, otherwise I wouldn't be in this kind of work, right, in media and communication. I, I have, I'm relatively at ease speaking about stuff. It doesn't really matter what, but I can always tell stories or, or share my, my experiences. But what I always, always try to do, and this is something that I've learned in Rome when I was studying communications, was before you speak, before you communicate, get to know your audience. Because the more you know about your audience, the more you can adapt your both the contents but also the form of what you want to share and, and make sure that it fits 
the language, the situation, the questions, the needs of your particular audience. And so to their, they expected me to do a very classic retreat. You know, I would just have written down everything and start explaining a Bible passage or something like that. But that's not how I started. I was like, well, before I'm starting to talk, who are you? Who do I have? There were about 20 uh, women. Uh, what's your background? Why are you here? What are you looking for during this retreat? And that took an hour. That took away all the time that I actually initially was allotted to uh, to use. But I'm glad that we did because I, I listened to all these stories and what I uh, discovered to my great surprise was that only a few of these people were Catholic. And a lot of them were from Protestant denominations. Um and yet they were all there as a group to talk about faith and to pray with the monks. And also the overall, like their, let's say their background, the, the way they saw their sel- themselves in, in relation to the church was very different. Some were very frustrated about, you know, the church of their youth where everything was uh, compulsory and there was always this threat that if you wouldn't do exactly, you know, if you wouldn't live according to the rules, you would go to hell. It's a, and also in, in Protestant circles, um, there was oftentimes, and what we're talking about, these were slightly older ladies, um, in, in their youth, um, the, the the Protestant community could could be just as strict as the Catholic community, and so you could tell from a lot of them that they had you know taken their distance from the church and they didn't really feel at home anymore. They were a little bit uh, I don't know adrift, but that it sounds negative. But they were definitely looking and searching and trying to find their own. Well, where so where am I now in my life and what do I truly believe? And um, and it's very interesting. Most of them, uh, even even the Catholic peop- uh, ladies that were there, were were still very much questioning their faith and trying to figure out who is God for me and what does He ask. So uh, the they did none of them had actually an answer to my question. What? Do, why are you here? <laughs> but they were they were there to to talk and this is they have their monthly meetings and they talk about faith they read scripture they read theologians and then they discuss and share and they pray together which i think is beautiful and so what i did was after i'd done the the rounds and and i i knew how they well what their situation was i i talked about my own uh let's say my own road in faith and um and, and that was interesting because I had prepared something totally different. I wanted to just talk about my experiences in, in Scotland and talk about the Celtic monks. And I threw that out of the window. It was like, no, I think that they they may have a certain perception of me, uh, you know, being this Roman Catholic priest, well-known from television, orthodox, uh, uh, in Roman color. Uh, we're going to get a very, very orthodox, uh, very standard meditative story. But what I tried to do was I, I was um, telling them how I received my calling as a priest and how I looked at the world and at faith when I was 18 years old and how that changed over time and how the experiences in life, both the great experiences but also the, um, the struggles, the suffering that you experience, the failure uh, in, in your own life, uh, how that makes you more and more... Uh, I would say humble 
not in a way that look at me how humble I am, but uh, but more it makes you careful to judge other people because you know how much your own life in faith, your own way in 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 uh, with God, has been going with ups and downs and has had its failures and moments of reconciliation, and how much that has also impacted my the way I look at God and. Uh, God, for me, I think when I was 18 years old, he was an arbiter. He was a judge. He he was always at the side of the good guys and the good girls. And then you had the heretics and the people that would mess up uh, everything and uh, the priests that didn't kneel after consecration. And my world was super black and white. And it was obvious God is with the on the on the white side of the force. <laughs> and of course, over time, you learn that well. I'm not always a good guy. I'm not always right. I had to learn a lot of things. Um, uh, I, I, but God stays who he is. He stays faithful. He stays at my side. And he accompanies me on his way. This is not my way. This is his way. And what is much more important than being right or knowing everything, or following every rule and regulation to the letter, it's much more to have a faithful heart, a heart that attaches itself to God, and also acknowledges, I don't know everything, I fail from time to time, I get lost, be my rock, be my guide, be my the way under my feet. And so I was able to talk a little bit about my experiences on the, on the road to Santiago de Compostela, and how much how confrontational that was and how much I started to doubt everything I did and that at one point the moment that everything changed was this realization that um, God didn't want me to to be perfect but what he asked me was to walk on the road to Santiago and then he himself, that Jesus himself is the way and as, as long as I'm walking on his way then nothing really can go wrong. And he wants to be the road underneath my feet in a certain way. And I don't have to invent everything. It's right there. The only thing I need to do is move forward. And if I lose the way, which happens a lot when you're looking for those yellow markers that point towards Santiago, if you lose your way, ask for help and then get back to where you lost the way and and move on. And, And so that was kind of, that's really what I believe is being uh, a Christian, having faith, it doesn't mean that you know everything and that you don't make mistakes. Actually, I think that Catholics or Christians that pound their chest and say, well, we are right and we are orthodox and uh, all the others are wrong and they're, I don't know, they have all sorts of judgments, negative views on other people. I would be very careful because it's usually a sign that um, rigidity often comes from uncertainty and from self-doubt or even worse, self-loathing. Or So there, sometimes people want to project the, this image of being a perfect Catholic and they need to pound on other people that they are not good enough so that they reassure themselves that, well, at least I am doing. But that's what I think that the attitude of Jesus is very critical of in the Pharisees and in the scribes is a, you pretend to to be perfect, but you're not. You're just as much a sinner as all the others. And he welcomes those people that dare to acknowledge that and dare to ask for forgiveness and dare to ask for a new chance. And I think that that really 
um, was this, was what I was called to to share there, and had wonderful, wonderful conversations afterwards. Um, and it always surprises me that, and that happens also when I preach in church, that sometimes you prepare something, and it turns out that if you start with listening and uh, and asking the other person, well, to share first, share your life with me, that sometimes God will inspire you. To, inspire you to say something totally different. You don't know where it's coming from, but afterwards you realize, well, that is exactly what I, why I was there. That is what I was supposed to say. When did you become an expert in thermonuclear astrophysics? Last night. The packet. The extraction theory papers. Am I the only one who did the reading? It is time for a book review. Um, I have uh, recorded my thoughts on uh, my, my recent book challenge for 2020. I'm trying to read one book per week. I'm still glad that I am way ahead of schedule. So this past week, I've had a lot of other th stuff uh, to do. So I didn't make as much progress on the books that I w am currently reading than I hope to. But, well, it doesn't really matter because I can, I, I'm still ahead of the of the game for next week i want to go and read the third book in the series uh, of the wheel of time so that is going to require extra attention because in order to finish one of those books 600 pages uh, more or less i need to read 100 pages per day so that is going to require a lot of focus but uh, this past week um, i've been reading two books uh, partially in book form and partially uh, by listening to the audiobook. And I really, really enjoy both of these books. I haven't finished uh, the, both of the books, but I still can give you a review of one of them. The, well, the first book that I'm currently listening to is Creativity Inc. And it's all about Pixar and how Pixar came to be. And um, it's fascinating because, well, Pixar is an amazing company and uh, it's almost a miracle that it's it's grown into what it is currently. So that is, it's interesting, but it, it's not, it's more descriptive. So I, I like listening to it because it's about projects, uh, Pixar projects that we all are very familiar with. But it um, it's, it's one of those books that once I've read it, okay, well, I'll just set it aside and I'll read something else. But the other book that I'm currently reading um, has a lot of life lessons and I think I can already give you five of those lessons. It, it, the book is written by Bob Iger, um, of course, the current head of, of Disney. And it, the book is called The Ride of a Lifetime. And you may have heard uh, about this book because a couple of weeks ago, before the premiere of uh, The Rise of Skywalker, Bob Iger did the rounds, the media rounds, talked about his book, and um, also spilled the beans on some of the stuff that was happening behind the scenes uh, while they were making um, The Force Awakens and The Last Jedi. And it had a lot of information that we hadn't heard uh, of uh, before because Disney is very good at keeping secrets and there's always something going on behind the scenes. Um, just Google, you know, Star Trek rumors uh, on YouTube and you will see tons and tons of conspiracy theories and fans, uh, you know, starting wars um, because of how they perceive Disney is maltreating franchises or making the wrong decisions or the right decisions. Um, but this was one of the few times that we get that we've we've gotten a little bit of a glimpse behind the scenes of what was truly going on. 
and it was fascinating material. So that made me want to read the entire book. And what I discovered was that the book is actually um, more of a, it's a tutorial. It's, it's a book with, re with lessons. It wants to really teach you how to become a better leader. Um, and a lot of the experience that, experiences that Bob Iger is sharing um, are lessons that you can extrapolate from his personal uh, situation as the, the, the head of, of Disney and apply it to your own life. And that's what I want to do in this uh, short review. I want to take five pieces of advice that he um, talks about in the chapters of this book, um, but that I can also apply to my own life as a priest and as a someone who's also working in the media, but on a totally different scale, of course, and in a different area of expertise as Disney is. Um, and the five pieces of advice, just summarize them, is have a relentless pursuit of perfection. So always try to, to do what you do, but do it really above mediocre. Never go for just a, a 7 out of 10 points, but go for the 10. Um, the second uh, uh, piece of advice is don't think in problems, but think in solutions. Again, sounds very cliche, but he gives a lot of examples on how he applies that as a manager of, of Disney. Third lesson is um, don't be a pessimist because people don't follow pessimists. Be an optimist. Be always forward-looking. I'll go into detail how, that, how I'm trying to apply those lessons to, to my own life. Uh, the fourth lesson is don't let your ego grow too big. So don't let your your selfishness, your your w how you want to be perceived, etc. Don't let that get in the way of what needs to be done, or what is good for the company, or what is good for the future of of your projects. So be careful with your ego, or at least be aware of your ego. And then the fifth one—that's maybe the one that I love the most. Uh, be bold. It's as simple as that. Boldly go where no one has gone before. Okay, Star Trek is not Disney property, but still, it's that same idea. Be bold, dare to take chances. Well, the reason that these five lessons struck a chord with me is that I have a lot of personal experiences that, that, uh, that make me relate to these pieces of advice. So let me fill them in a little bit. The, the relentless pursuit of perfection. This is both, I think... Um, of a very, it's very good advice. It can also be very dangerous advice. Um, let me start with a danger. I am, let's say, as a habit, I am a, a perfectionist. I really want my, the, what I do, I want it to be perfect. And I spend way more time than is actually healthy on recording my shows, on making YouTube videos, on putting together documentaries, even filming. I spend so much time um, not just thinking about what is my message, but also perfecting the form. To give you an example, uh, when I first started in the world of television, I was just a presenter. I didn't write my own text. The only thing that they asked me was to step in front of a camera and deliver those lines. Hey, I'm Father Roderick, and today we're going to watch uh, this documentary about uh, Sister So-and-so who works among the poor in this or that city. Um, enjoy. And then I would wrap it up with similar words. And then over time, um, I, I was observing how other people around me made those documentaries. I didn't film anything. 
and I was very eager to learn, and and uh, I was also, uh, and this is also partially because I've studied communications in Rome and and did some, well, I studied how to make television. Of course, I never had a job in television before that, so I'd never, I'd never been able to put the, put it into practice. But I was very critical about the programs that I needed to present on television because, and that's the funny thing, people do think that I filmed everything. Even though you hear the voice of a, uh, a a lady who did the interview, but they still think that I was there next to the camera, and I, I loved some of the things. I disliked some of the other topics that we did. And at one point, I was like, "Well, I th- I want to give it a try. I want to try to film my own documentary." So that's what I did, and I spent about a week, day and night editing that together. I had to teach myself how to use Avid. Uh, uh, it was, uh, it was a, an editing program, very professional editing program. It was such a hard learning curve, but I just worked day and night to master it. And I remember that the day before I had to uh, deliver the end product, the final show, I showed it to a friend of mine who also is an editor. And he gave me feedback, basically telling me, it's okay, it's not bad for someone who does this for the first time, but if I would edit it, I would first do this, and then I would take this part of the story and put it there, and you would get much more cohesion in the story. Uh, I would change the music. So I normally, normal people probably would have said, oh, well, I'll keep that in mind for the next time. And, well, I did my best, and it's, it's definitely not bad. What did I do? I spent 24 hours awake. I didn't go to sleep. I didn't eat. I didn't take a minute off. And I completely re-edited that entire episode along the lines of the advice that I got. And it totally broke me. It, It took me two weeks to recover from that. But I just wanted my first documentary, documentary to be perfect. Many years later, <laughs> I looked back at that first episode and I was like, oh my goodness, <laughs> what was I thinking? I did not know what I was doing, but it's not bad. But over time, while because I kept doing this and I wanted to get better at it, so I, I, I taught myself how to film. And at first I had a very mediocre camera and then I got a better one. I started to watch tutorials on YouTube. I started to you know, put more shows together myself. And I constantly wanted to improve my craft and perf- perfect what I did. And even now, that's what I'm still doing with YouTube. Same thing. I'm recording videos. Um, but I'm studying, well, not day and night, but I've spent a, a considerable amount of time in following tutorials on how to grow an audience on YouTube, how to make sure that videos work. Um, I set up a green screen, um, some extra lights. I got a new camera. I've got a, I, I was like, well, I need to stay on topic. So I need something to remind me when I'm watching the camera, I want to have something in my face that shows me, okay, next point that you're going to discuss is this and that. So I got a small uh, auto cue or a teleprompter in front of me. So I'm never content with what it is. I always want to go to the next level. So I'm working for television. I've got 30 uh, television episodes uh, per year, which is considerable. And I make all of them with a little bit of help from my friends and colleagues. Um, But that's not where I want to end. My next goal is to make something that you could show on Netflix or 
I don't know, Disney Plus. Why not? Just try to get to the next level of quality. I want to start working in 4K. I want to become better at, at not just at filming, but interviewing, uh, keep building up a story arc, etc. for my documentary. So that first... And, and, and the, the trick, and, or the, the, I should say, the, the tricky thing is how to balance that, how to balance health and, and also allowing yourself to grow and at the same time always stay hungry, as Steve Jobs would put it, stay hungry, always try to aim for the next step that you can take. And I think that, that is more what Bob Iger tries to communicate, is never think that you're there. Always try to go the extra mile and try to improve what you do. The second advice that he gives is don't just present problems, but also provide solutions. This is something that is extremely important in my life as a priest. Um, I've seen a lot of bitter Catholics, disappointed Catholics, Catholics that complain that, oh, in my parish, oh, it's terrible, oh, the choirs, oh, the, the pastor, oh, the bishop, oh, the pope. And all they do is complaining. And they kind of seek each other's company. And now with social media, of course, that is very easy. And then they just go on these rants and say, oh, have you seen what the pope has said now? And they don't even verify if it's truly what he said. But it's just moaning, complaining. If only we had the previous pope and or, or the next pope. It's like, well, but that's not productive. The, what's much more important is you can signal a problem, but make sure that it's not just a frustration. But, but try, where is my frustration coming from? What is, in my view, the real problem? And can I do something to make the situation better? It's, it's something that you see in the first episode of, of Star Trek Picard, where uh, Jean-Luc Picard, no spoilers, is very frustrated about the, the situation in the world, the situation of Starfleet, but his impulse is, well, engage. Literally, it's he engages in the situation and tries to do what he can do to improve the situation. That is leadership. And that is something that I should always be aware of in my, in my parish, in my work that I do, the team that I work with at Tridio, my media company. Don't just complain about things that are going wrong or that are not what you want it to be, but Think ahead, make a plan B, make a plan C if necessary, and, and put time and resources and energy into providing solutions and getting people on board to better a situation. But don't stop with just the complaining because that leads to the dark side. Third piece of advice that Bob Iger gives in his book, don't be a pessimist because no one wants to follow a pessimist. How true is that? No one likes someone who is only complaining. You know that from your personal experience. You know, we all have that family member or friend at a party. That person sits down and is like, oh, that's never going to work. Oh, that's never going to improve. Ugh, the climate change, the world is going to, is going to fall in disarray. Oh, it's never going to work anymore. Oh. Or people are sometimes like that towards themselves, super negative, always criticizing themselves. And what I've, I, I, that's kind of not my thing. I am hugely, very easy, easily pleased. I'm, uh, I get enthusiastic about things. And, and for me, the, what I try to do 
in the, what I what I post on 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 YouTube, what I uh, talk about in my podcast, I want, always want to be positive. I want I'm an optimist, um, not naive, but my optimism is rooted in hope. I always have hope that people can outgrow the problems that we can always find solutions if we put our mind to it um, never despair never surrender uh, always always look for the, the the bright side even in people that irritate you always try to empathize well what could be this what could be his or her problem even though I may not always be able to to solve it but always try to look at, at is there a solution for this and so um, and I think that this positivity is why people follow me on YouTube. I think if I would ask my followers, why, do you, why did you hit that subscribe button? And the bell button, of course, so people get notified. But why did you hit that subscribe button? It is, and I get that a lot in the reactions, in the comments, it's because you're so positive. I mean, uh, we, 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 uh, Sky, uh, the Rise of Skywalker came out and like 99% of the reviews on YouTube were terrible or negative. People were complaining and ranting and then we saw you standing outside there outside of the uh, the theater in Amsterdam and you were just one explosion of joy and it's infectious and it gave me hope and and I it, it made me want to go see the movie and you were right it was so much better than everyone said it was so people love to follow optimists and not pessimists and you know uh, for me it's not something I have to force myself to do it's just me. I love to be enthusiastic about things, but apparently it's something that people crave and need. Fourth piece of advice, don't let your ego get in the way. Very important to... I think this is this is uh, something that also appeals to me, uh, and, and it's something that my mother taught me. Always stay humble, even though you can be very good at things, but never brag about it. Just... Uh, relativize who you are and what you do um, because humility is a virtue um, but it also will prevent you from from blocking things or blocking others because of your ego the world is not about you even your life is not about you and I think that's a very important Christian value is is that we, we our lives is not ours uh, we are we are meant to be givers and uh, one of the ways in which the Virgin Mary, for me, is such a such an icon of, of who I am supposed to be, is her humility. I am the servant of the Lord. That is her entire attitude. Let it be done according to your will. And I try to to be like that in my life, and to always. Uh, even though people may praise me at, when I was young I had trouble accepting praise and I was like oh it's terrible what I did and it's not good at all um, but and I've learned over time that it's okay to be proud and to be happy with what you what you've done but what for me is very important in my own lifestyle is to always realize that what I'm able to do is because it's been given to me um, that's the whole idea of talents in 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 the gospel um, God gave me talents gave you talents but he wants and he wants us to use those talents you don't have to bury them in the ground actually that would be a bad thing to do but always be conscious of the fact that you can only do that because it was given to you as something that you can uh, that can help other people 
So always put your, chal- your, your talents at the service of others, and that will make you so much happier than egotism. Literally, a, a selfish world is a lonely world. But if you, if you want to be there for others, if you, want to sh- if you can share what you have been given, that will make you, there's nothing more gratifying than to be able to make someone else happy and to give away what you have. Final piece of advice almost speaks for itself. Be bold. Be daring. Same thing as uh, what what Steve Jobs said in the famous commencement speech at a university campus. Um, Be hungry. Stay hungry. Um, Dare to take chances. As soon uh, dare to step out of your comfort zone. Um, I, I'm very much a hobbit in, in many aspects. I, I like to be alone. I like to sit at the fireplace and read a book. But I've also learned that the moments that I've really changed and for the better or learned something is the moments that I dare to step out of that bubble and go on an adventure. So you have to have that Tukish side in you as well and, and listen to it. Instead of just staying in the Shire where everything is predictable and comfortable, challenge yourself. Maybe not all the time, but as, l- as soon as you feel like oh, I'm kind of stuck in the situation, I'm repeating myself, I'm doing what I've always done, and I'm a little bit too comfortable with that, challenge yourself to go past that. And that's also true in terms of what I do in the media. Uh, set yourself goals that are a little bit beyond your reach. Like when you can't swim, you don't think, well, I'm going to jump in this swimming pool. But if you tell yourself, well, I want to learn how to swim, I'm going to challenge myself. And yes, I'm going to jump into the water and have someone help me to survive. Well, that's that's kind of how you can approach life as well. Uh, be bold and dare dare to fail. Being bold is not always about success. It's also try stuff, evaluate, and try again. And if necessary, walk away from things, readjust, improve. But uh, if you never step out of your comfort zone, you will never grow and you will never learn. That's uh, kind of the summary of the lessons that I learned from Bob Iger uh, in his in his uh, latest book. Um, highly recommended. It. It's interesting, not just because of the all the Disney and Star Wars uh, anecdotes, but also because of the well, the life lessons that he gives. And with that, it is time to move over to the world of uh, science fiction and uh, fantasy. And of course, we have to wait for the jingle to end. <laughs> I want to talk about Star Wars a little bit, because there is some news that I want to comment on. Aliens. Little aliens from outer space. And how are things in outer Plutonia? How many times have I told you not to wear your space boots in the house? Go to shape. I mean, you can donate my body to science fiction. Get your suit on! We need you! Everyone has already commented on the news that the television series on Disney Plus about Obi-Wan Kenobi was put on hold. Um, the news broke about a week ago, I think, on one of those unreliable, unreliable clickbaity uh, rumor sites. 
And uh, at first, people discarded it because of that, because the news sounded very alarmist. It was like, Obi-Wan Kenobi series canceled in, in you know, big letters. And another failure for Disney. Uh, everything that Kathleen Kennedy touches uh, disappears into a poof of smoke, etc. And another proof that it, Star Wars should have never been sold to Disney, etc., etc., etc. And a lot of people that have complaints about or perceived complaints about how Disney is running the Star Wars franchise reposted that even without confirming or verifying the sources. And then the next phase was that some people were like, well, hey, but this is again on that same uh, website and there is actually a, there are a couple of websites websites that thrive on clickbait and they will often use one of their other websites as a source. So they'll make up a story and then they'll post a news article about that story on one of their other websites so that people that are not paying attention think, well, well, well this comes from a reliable source, and but it's all self-referential. And so my first reaction was also to discard it. So, we've seen so many of those rumors in the past. And I know from working in the media and working in the world of television that it's very normal that sometimes during a season... Plans change, uh, the people you work with change, uh, there's a change in director, change of leadership. It doesn't really mean that, that things uh, go awry. It's just part of how the industry works. And especially if changes happen for good reasons, namely to improve the final result, then why worry about it? It's just... So I'm never really interested in those alarmist stories. I'm thinking, well... This is not just a company, you know. Disney knows, they know what they do and they have a very pretty good track record. Um, even with the, the so-called failures like Solo, they still make a ton of money with that movie as well. So um, I, I discarded it as being fake news. Well, it turns out it wasn't as fake as we all thought. There was a, a, a piece of truth in it. Those are actually, that's the best clickbait, of course. If there is a little bit of truth and then you just make up the rest. Well, the truth is that indeed the crew that was working on the Obi-Wan series has been sent home. And uh, the series, the production of the series is currently on hold. The series itself is still scheduled to start filming uh, at the beginning of next year. Uh, well, actually, no, that's not true. I think the filming, was the filming scheduled for, for this year already? I don't know if that has been postponed or not. Maybe not. But anyway... But what they want to do is to uh, spend more time on the writing of the episodes. Now, there is a little bit of unconfirmed news, and that is that uh, the first run of the series would just be four episodes long, and that they had written two episodes and were already casting some of the other characters that would play opposite of um, Obi-Wan's character, or even McGregor. Um, one of those rumors you may have read it also, was that they were going to cast a young Luke Skywalker, which I have no idea if that's true, but totally makes sense and would immediately make this a must-watch for any Star Wars fan. And it, it kind of makes sense. I've been thinking, well, hmm, that's going, that could be controversial because Obi-Wan Kenobi in A New Hope was kind of a strange old man that Luke had some vague idea about. Um, but I think that if you if you look carefully at the dialogue in uh, in A New Hope, then and Luke at one point says, hmm, "I wonder if he he means old Ben Kenobi," and so 
there is a hint, at least, a possibility that Luke has run into Obi-Wan in his younger years, but it had may have been years ago, years before the events of A New Hope. And so I think that there is a possibility to, to have a younger Luke Skywalker be part of the plot. Of course, it probably would, would have been a child or a teenager uh, because of the timeline. But I think that um, there are a lot of story uh, possibilities, especially because we know that Obi-Wan was on Tatooine to observe and protect uh, Luke Skywalker. Obi-Wan, of course, knew that uh, Luke Skywalker was the son of, uh, of Anakin Skywalker. So he was kind of a like a protector on, uh, at a distance. Um, but then, apparently, again, according to unconfirmed news, uh, the two scripts weren't actually working. And I'm wondering if they were recalibrating after the success of The Mandalorian and, of course, the lessons learned from The Mandalorian, maybe even because of what they heard from other series, like, I don't know, Star Trek Picard, that they realized, well, what we have is good, but it's not good enough. We need to up it a notch. Uh, and the expectations around Star Wars are sky high. They have always been. That is, Star Wars fans are very hard to please because they love the franchise so much and they have such high expectations. And so the reason, and we know this for sure, that there has been a delay in the production and that the current crew has been sent home is not because the series gets canceled, that was fake news, but because they want to rewrite the existing scripts, and make them much better. Here's what Ewan McGregor actually uh, said, and this is classic crisis management, of course. Uh, they saw these stories making the rounds, and people started to complain, and oh, another failure for Disney. And so, very good crisis communication. What do you do? The star of the show, who can do nothing wrong, because it's, you know, Ewan McGregor. Hello there. Um, let him be the port parole. Let him be the messenger. Uh, of the good news that, well, don't worry, fans, it's still going to happen. And so he wrote, he said in an interview, the scripts are really, really good. I'm not going to do an impersonation. The scripts are really, really good. They want to make them better, and they just slid the production to shooting next year. Okay, so here we have the confirmation that shooting was actually going to take place probably in the second half of, of this year. They're moving it up to next year. So it's not as dramatic as it sounds. I just got there tonight. I just got here tonight, and it's like, oh my God, look at all this stuff. It's not that dramatic. I think we're airing the same day and all that stuff. So he also seems to confirm that the actual delivery of the series will still be on schedule. They're just taking some extra time to rewrite the episodes. And if we're just talking about four episodes, if that is true, we don't know for sure, then I, I think he can say that with confidence. You can totally film four episodes, especially if they're using the same techniques as in, with The Mandalorian on this virtual set. They don't have to travel the planet. The, they know the technology. They have experience. Then they can totally shoot those four episodes in a limited time span and stay on schedule. I was personally very happy with the news that they realized that we need a rewrite. I'd rather have them rewrite it now than when they're in the middle of shooting, like what happened with Solo. We all heard afterwards what happened there, and then it's not like during production, while they were filming, that's when they decided they needed another director and the, and the script needed to be rewritten. The same happened with Rogue One. Rogue One, at one point, was a disaster. The story didn't work, and they had to 
partially, completely rewrite the plotline and the events. And that is why there are some, some very strange things in Rogue One. Remember that, that big tower with that satellite dish? When I saw that in the movie theater, I was like, that looks wonky. That looks tacked on. That, that doesn't look like something that Lucasfilm would come up with. It, it looks clunky. And then we had seen these, these uh, previews of stormtroopers storm on a shoreline and running, walking through the water, and it looked awesome. And in the final movie, that was completely gone. And when I saw that satellite dish, I was like, oh, this is probably something they changed. They needed to have something on top of that tower so that the final sequence could take place while they were climbing that archival tower trying to retrieve the, the disk with the data. And I think that's exactly what happened. That happened in the middle of production or towards the end of production. It cost them a lot of money and a lot, it caused a lot of stress. But the end result, nevertheless, even though I still don't like that tower and the looks of, it, of that, that satellite dish, but it still works if you didn't know that, that so much had been changed in Rogue One, then you, know, you wouldn't have noticed. And so... Uh, it uh, rewrites changes of leadership cha a change of director doesn't mean that the end result is going to be going to go down the drain on the contrary it may actually lead to a much better product so i would say don't worry too much fear leads to the dark side stay calm all is going to be well the second thing that i want to talk about has to do with rogue one I don't know if you've uh, read the news, but uh, there is going to be this second series uh, dedicated to the world of Star Wars, in addition to the Obi-Wan series. But this one is going to be a prequel series to the events in Rogue One. And the most recent news was an interview with Alan Tudyk. And, of course, if you are a brown coat, then you know that he is awesome. And <laughs> you also know that K2SO the um, awesomest uh, droid that the Star Wars universe has ever known, is going to be back because he's going to be played by Alan Tudyk. If you don't know what a brown coat is, Google it. Now, Alan Tudyk, of course, was one of the major uh, and one of the funniest characters in, uh, in Firefly. And at first I didn't even know that he was the voice of, of K2SO. Even better... He is not just the voice of K2SO, he also does all the motion capture. And when these plans of doing uh, like a prequel series on TV, on Disney+, Plus, uh, before the events in Rogue One, when that news came out, I, was, I couldn't be happier. And uh, the decision that they made to, um, to do, uh, the, the, the bring back the character of Cassian and K2SO... I think was golden because that, that that chemistry between those two was was really working. Um, you will you would have uh, so much uh, opportunity to create a buddy story. You know, it's like they're like two cops and they're very different. And the robot is grumpy and the other one is heroic and a rebel. And, and you could you can tell so many stories with that you know combination of those two characters. Well, according to Alan Tudyk himself. Not only is he back for the voice of K2SO, but they, they at first told him, well, we can, we can ask someone else to do all the motion capture uh, because it was quite difficult to do the motion capture. Um, uh, Alan Tudyk has a, has a pretty classical background, I think. 
also in mime. Um, so for the movie for Rogue One, he was uh, doing all the motion capture himself. And he walked on stilts all the time, which was at first very, very difficult. So he would end up taking them off, putting them on again. And then by the end of the shoot, he was constantly walking around on stilts. It was so He was so used to them. And um, I think... Uh, this was one of the things that struck me that was that K2SO was so believable as a droid and now I understand why. It's because the 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 acting and the voice was one and the same. Uh, just like C-3PO, you need Anthony Daniels. If you see C-3PO in uh, uh, the Clone Wars animated series, I mean, it's C-3PO and you have the voice, but the animation is very generic. Uh, in Star Wars, in The Rise of Skywalker, you can totally tell that this is one and the same person, the voice and the acting. And I love that. It's even in a certain way, it's, it's, it's more personal than, than the character of the Mandalorian, who in some episodes was not even played by the main actor. Someone else played him, and then he just provided the voice. Not with K2SO. And in this series, Alan Tudyk has said, I am also going to do all the motion capture. Because I love doing that. And uh, what you may not know is that he was also uh, the actor who played and portrayed uh, the robot from iRobot, uh, Sonny, uh, the main character. And I, I have a lot of mm, criticism on, on iRobot. It was a bit generic, um, looked very CGI. But if there's one thing that was utterly convincing, it was that, you know, robot. And, and it was all motion capture. Um, and I didn't realize it was Alan Tudyk. Of course, here K2SO, totally different type of robot. But the knowing that he's going to do and the performance and also the voice and thereby also, the, of course, the comedic delivery, the timing, the comedic timing is so important. And knowing that that is in good hands makes me super confident that the, that we will all like this series and also you know with all the the discussion going on about the delays maybe in production of of the obi-wan kenobi series and people being very upset about that oh we're gonna starve we're not gonna get enough star wars in the future well this series is actually going to be scheduled to be filmed this year and it's coming out before the obi-wan series so it's a good time to be a star wars fan we are on the cutting edge of technology. Wow. Well, what does that mean? Let's plug it in. It's going to say, hey, I see you plugged in a new device. And it's going to load in the appropriate drivers. You'll notice that this scanner built... Whoa. Well, all your technology stuff, it just ends in disaster. But there is one more thing. Today I want to talk about the Oculus Quest. You may know that I'm a huge fan of VR technology and I was an early adopter of the predecessor of the Oculus Quest, which was the uh, still great Oculus Go. Now Oculus, of course, was bought by or acquired by Facebook because they were really trying to develop other forms of, of building social networks and, of course, make a ton of money selling advertisement. Let's not forget that. And uh, But the fact that Facebook was backing the development of VR was for fans of VR like I am, uh, was great news because it means you have 
a, a partner with deep pockets. And so the development of the Oculus has been uh, extremely rapidly. And when the Go came out, I loved the price. The price quality uh, balance was extremely good and I have thoroughly enjoyed playing around with the Oculus Go. Uh, a lot of the experiences were free or dirt cheap. Um, and uh, yeah, of course it was not the kind of quality that you would get with a tethered headset like the PlayStation VR or even the Rift uh, and other similar uh, headsets that were on the market. But what, what I loved was its simplicity. It was wireless. You just put it in front of your eyes and you're in a different world. It wasn't even all-access VR. So um, you could just you know, look left and right and then that would all make sense. But as soon as you would like bow down to take pick something up of the floor from the floor you couldn't do it and and, and it immediately caused nausea i remember some of those experiences where i was like i i, I want to kind of get closer to what i'm seeing here in front of me and and then your brain says well sure you should be able to get closer if you move your head and then but the set wasn't able to detect that motion and so it was like oh wait hold on i get a barf <laughs> the Quest is kind of a follow-up project, um, more expensive, I have to say, uh, but also more powerful. They wanted to retain the form factor of the Oculus Go, also keep the wireless nature of the headset, which sets it apart from anything else on the market, and also give it a slightly faster chip. These, these cheaper headsets are... are, are um, uh, fueled, you could say, by um, like two-year-old mobile phone technology. So it's not the latest chips, but they're reliable. And uh, for the, the thing is with 3D, if, if you look at sc screenshots from these 3D experiences, you think, oh, that looks so old. It looks like a PlayStation 2. But the 3D, the virtual nature of it is very forgiving, and so uh, if, if it makes sense to your brain, you tend to forget about the simplicity of the graphics. And what matters is the added, literally, literally the added dimension that you get in VR. So the Oculus Quest uh, came out later than after the Go. It was more expensive, but it had a few improvements over the Go that were uh, a game changer. First of all, if you it now measures all your movements. So if you would say kneel down, move your head closer to an object, it will actually be closer to your face in 3D as well. That is vital for immersion. The second thing, it was more powerful. So the experiences could become a little bit more uh, interesting. Uh, a lot of the stuff for the Oculus Go is very relatively short and more demo material than anything else. What they also did was to um, to uh, create um, software that would be more standalone. Uh, for Facebook, it was important to make this second headset more profitable. And also because, not just for Facebook, because they already make a lot of money, but also for the developers. They wanted to create a headset um, which would allow developers to make more ambitious uh, software that they could also sell for a, at a higher price. And, of course, if, if developers can make more money, then uh, they're more eager to invest in new experiences. You get better software, better programs, better games, uh, and thereby, of course, pur purchasing the headset also becomes more viable, uh, more more interesting. So uh, 
when the Quest came out, I was very intrigued, but there was not much of an incentive for me to buy it because I was enjoying the Oculus Go. I had sideloaded a, a, a little program that would allow me to stream uh, um, the graphics from Steam VR. So I remember playing um, there were only a few games that worked with that, but to play uh, Skyrim VR, I bought it on Steam VR and I was wirelessly transmitting it to the Oculus Go. The computer that I use uh, is six years old, um, so it's absolutely not uh, powerful enough to play that for a long time. Uh, you would overheat even while I was playing Skyrim, but it showed me the potential if you know you could stream um, games from Steam VR being processed by a real computer wirelessly to a headset. Well, with the Quest, you wouldn't have that, so I, I was like, meh, it's just a minor upgrade to what I have. I'm happy with my Go. No need to buy it. I can save myself a couple of hundred bucks. Well, and then things started to change uh, in the development of, 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 of the Oculus. So what, what Facebook then developed was a USB um, connection, a USB cord, that you could plug into a USB-C port on your PC if you have a, a powerful computer. And then the headset is recognized as an Oculus Rift. And it works together with Steam VR and other VR programs, which means that all of a sudden it still has a wire, so it's it's tethered, but that simple, r relatively cheap headset all of a sudden is offers the same abilities as, as a full price headset. The other thing, of course, that the Quest adds in addition to the Oculus Go are these two controllers that you can hold in your hands, which also is something in the Go that that really limited the the software you couldn't do anything that involved uh you know hand movements because well there there was no control there you had a small controller which is super limited but for instance uh, one of my favorite games is uh no man's land which is a uh, uh science fiction game where you can visit planets and mine them build your own spaceships etc it's a lot of fun no way in the world that that could ever play on a go i tried it with that you know uh wireless program that i sideloaded but there, there was just no way to to steer the menu so uh with the quest you get these two controllers but there's even more waiting for us this year and that is uh, facebook has developed uh hand recognition so now there are cameras integrated in the quest they can see your hands and they can recreate your hands in vr and apparently from what i've heard those that have beta tested that technology it works really well now those two developments having these you know the hand recognition plus the ability to use the headset not just as standalone but also tethered to a pc that made me uh, uh, go for it, and so I uh, I kept an eye on uh, the secondhand um, offers on Amazon because Amazon, of course, pays you have to pay full price if you uh, order it normally. But they also have, uh, for instance, headsets that people send back, and I've I've had this experience before. You you pay sometimes. It, it, in my case, it was a hundred euros less than the official retail price, and. Um, they for, they tell you in the description has some scratches battery is missing but that's a generic piece of text that they always put in there 
And but most of the time, this is just something that someone got for Christmas, for instance. They're like, oh, well, what am I going to do with these goggles? I wanted something to observe birds and nature, and now you you have this VR set. I'm channeling uh, <laughs> Grandpa Simpson, but send it back. And so people send it back, and then they can't sell it as new. But it is just brand new. So that came in the mail just the other day, and I can't wait to test it out. And another uh, re- another incentive for me to, to buy it now was that until the 31st of January, it comes included with the Darth Vader experience. So uh, Lucasfilm developed uh, a number of uh, uh, games around the character of Darth Vader. Basically, you become a Jedi uh, or, a, I don't know, maybe a Sith, and Darth Vader, you have to confront Darth Vader. And they use the manual con- uh, controls, and you can actually wield a lightsaber in virtual reality. And that game normally costs about, I don't know, 25 bucks, and it came for free. Of course, it's, it's, a, it's a giveaway, but I get to face Darth Vader soon. And of course, as soon as I've faced Darth Vader, I will record another episode in which I tell you what it is to meet the Sith Lord. And with that, it is time. It is more than time to wrap up this long, long show. It's extra long because, well, last week I couldn't put a podcast together. So you'll just get two for the price of one. Hope you enjoyed this. Let me know in the comments uh, if you have any suggestions for future shows. If you are not subscribed to my YouTube channel, make sure to check out Father Roderick over at YouTube. Father Roderick builds for my Lego YouTube channel. Father Roderick stories for my vlog. Thanks to my patrons for supporting me. And I will see you next week.